All right. Well, welcome, Coastline family that's joined us in person tonight, and welcome to those online for our first question and answers night. This is something that's been in the works for a while uh, for prayer on on kind of going this route where we wanted to open up our what was our, our prophecy, Bible prophecy focused Thursday nights to basically anything biblical related, like any questions that people might have regarding God, regarding life. The heart of tonight is really just to answer those questions with the Bible the best we can. And in the process, hopefully helping people learn to navigate their Bibles as well, or, or kind of use, explaining the tools that we use when we're looking up for answers or, or whatnot as well. So um, to start out the night, I just want to uh, read that we had kind of going into um, what we're trying to do here, and that's Deuteronomy 29, 29. Um, in this section of scripture, God's renewing his covenant with his people, and he's explaining to them this covenant, and he's made with them everything he's done for them, and he's really exhorting them, please obey, because if you don't obey my word, you know, bad things are gonna happen. Consequences of sin are gonna happen in your life. And then he takes this little break in the middle in verse 29 to explain, I guess from what I see it as, to explain how God reveals, has revealed his word to us. And he says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And so within that verse, there's five specific things God tells us about his word. The first thing you understand is there's, there are gonna be those things that um, there's no answer to them. And so anything we try to answer or we try to say would be presumption. It's not God's word. It's not what he said. And therefore it's not something that we needed to know. Um, the other thing that he makes clear there that he has revealed some things to us, the things that are revealed there are things that God has revealed in God's word that we can be absolutely sure 100% of. They'll always prove to be true. They always have been, they always will be, okay? And then the third thing is those things are, they belong to us or they're, they're meant for us. They're directed towards us. They're for us to be received. They're for us to know. So that's the importance of knowing God's word. And then the fourth thing is they're, they're transgenerational. They're not just for us, they're for our kids and they're forever. Um, so that kind of goes with the, 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 the fourth and fifth thing is that they're, they're timeless. They, they apply to everyone, every generation. They, they always are um, applicable to our lives. That never changes. And then the last thing would be um, the words of, of his law. They're not just there for us to know in our heads. They're there to implement in our lives so that we experience the benefits of God's word for our lives, which we know they're beneficial or they're meant to be beneficial in multiple other places in God's word. So, so the heart of what we're doing tonight is like we, we wanna make sure that when we have questions in life or about God or anything else, this is where we go first, all right? Because this has the answers that we need to know. If there is no answer in here, then it's something that wasn't necessary for us to know positively, to live this life successfully. And God knows that better than anyone else. And if we find an answer, it's, or it's important for us to find the answers to those questions we have 
which is what we're trying to do tonight, because of we don't want to just sit on questions we have. We want to see what God has to say about those things. And the best way for you to learn how to uh, navigate God's word, the best way I've learned to navigate God's word is to actually just do it, to flip through it and do it and read it, whether just reading verse by verse or sitting in church or sitting in a Bible study or on your own. Actually, this is probably the way I've learned it the best is like, like very in-depth study or searching for questions, just even like we were doing tonight. Somebody asked a question, searching through the scriptures to find the answers to that question. That's what helps you realize or memorize God's word or understand it or come to know it um, in great depth. And so the rules for tonight are gonna be, we have some, uh, you guys listen up, no. (laughs) We have some um, pre-submitted questions that were submitted over the last couple of months and um, we're gonna take the bulk of the time to answer those um, because we wanna make sure to answer the questions people actually had and submitted. Now, while we're answering these, if there is a follow-up question or a clarification question in regards to those questions, I encourage you to ask that. Now, if you're an audience member here, you can raise your hand. I'll try to see it. We'll try to see it in the dark and we'll call on you to ask a clarification question regarding what's being said. Or um, if you're online, there's a number that basically you can text. I'll get that on my phone. And again, if it's a clarification question or a follow-up to what we're discussing, we'll, we'll answer that. Now, if you have a question that's totally different than what we're talking about, you're welcome to ask it. Um, but I would encourage anyone here to hold it to the end. And if you do it online, I'm gonna hold it to the end if we have time. And if we don't have time, it's just going to go into a queue and we'll get to it next month. So eventually it will get answered. Um, But we just wanna make sure to answer the ones that people actually already have asked so that we can answer their questions, all right? So to start out, just to introduce you, if you don't know, I'm I'm Pastor Chris. I'm lead pastor here. Um, We have Pastor Michael, one of our associate pastors that's teaching here, uh, teaches here as well. Um, we've got our elder Eric. He's one of our men's Bible study teachers as well. And then we got our other men's Bible study teacher, Britton Salisbury here as well. So all these guys have kind of assigned a question to, to look up ahead of time just to have a basis to, to answer. Um, there'll probably be some back and forth discussion between us as well. And uh, we'll do our best to answer these things. So um, with that said, would anyone like to go first? <laughs> And what we'll do is we'll read the question first and then we'll answer it so you know what it is that people asked. I'll go first. All right. <laughs> We're gonna have to cut you off at some point. This is like a long question. If there's anything I say that some, you're like, that's weird, I don't know if that's right. I would just encourage you just direct whatever questions, comments, criticisms you might have to uh, Chris or Michael here because <laughs> they're on staff and I'm not, so I don't have to worry about it. So. <laughs> uh, okay, so the first question was... Uh, the first question is this, why did God create Satan knowing what will happen with his deeds toward everything? And uh, this is a very good question, a question that I have wondered uh, often. And uh, it's a question that it's kind of one of these things that might be one of the secret things. You, okay, well, why did he do this? Why did he do this? Why did he do this? But So we might not actually be able to get to the very bottom of it, but just to start out, we need to look at some of the things we know about God, 
some of the things we know about Satan just to start with. The first thing is, um, first of all, that God created all things. Okay, this bottom down, he had made, and everything was good. Everything God uh, created was good. All of God's creation was in accordance with his will, and it was good. Okay, and a little bit we know about angels. Psalm chapter 8, verse 5 says, God created man a little lower than the angels. And then also Hebrews 14 said, angels uh, were created and are sent to serve those who will uh, inherit eternal life. So the purpose of angels, at least one purpose of them is to serve those who will inherit eternal life. That's in Hebrews 14. And when we think about Satan and you know, where did he come from? You know, why did God create him? Um, we have to remember that Satan did not start out as Satan. Satan started out as an angel. And the, his name, the word Satan, literally means um, accuser or adversary. And uh, he started out, and this is in Isaiah chapter 14, and this is it's translated in the King James Version. Uh, his name is Lucifer. Um, and this is a, a passage that's symbolic, uh, speaking of the king of Babylon, but it's commonly um, accepted that this is a symbolic of chapter 14, again, against God, describes this angel as, as saying, well, I'm, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to ascend and be like the Most High. And as a result of that, so he rebelled against God. He goes against God's will, and God cast him out of heaven. And did not create an adversary. God didn't create evil but, or, and sin, but that sin by this high-ranking angel who, now, who we now know as Satan. So did God create the angel? Of, of course he did. He created everything. Was it God's will for him to rebel and become Satan? No, I don't think so. So then that leads to the question, well, okay, so God didn't create Satan as we know him today. Well, then why did he create Lucifer at all? If he knew that Satan was, if he knew that he was going to rebel, you know, it's like, that's what I mean. It's just like a slippery slope. He could go down the line. Um, and I don't know. I don't know that. But I can tell you this, that God, um, he wants, in the same way that he wants a relationship with us. How do I say this? How do you reconcile the sovereignty of God the fact that God knows everything, he sees the beginning from the end, and the free will of men, the free will of men and women and people. Like, um, what's God's responsibility? What's our responsibility? And I think what it comes down to is this, is that God doesn't want forced obedience. He doesn't demand us to be robots to say, yes, I believe God. Yes, I will follow God. Yes, you know. He wants, us, he wants to have a loving relationship with him. I've often used this, uh, or not often, but every once in a while, you know. It wouldn't be very romantic if you, you know, walked up to, if I had walked up to Allie, you know, when I first started dating her, and, you know, like pinned her to the ground and, you know, tied her hands up and threw her on my shoulder and packed her home and said, we're getting married. <laughs> I mean, that, that wouldn't be a love relationship, would it? Because she would have no choice but to marry me. But in a love relationship, it's mutual, right? So God doesn't force anyone to follow him or love him or act according to his will. Of course, that's his desire. Of course, that's what he wants, but he won't force it. And I think in the same way that goes for us as, as people, evidently, 
what we see indicated by the scriptures is that in some way, shape, or form, it's the same way with the angels, that it was his will to rebel. And that's where, uh, yeah, that's where Satan came from. So, something to that. Yeah, and he already said this. I just want to like expound on it a little bit in that. Um, I, I think it's really important, and, and this kind of goes along when people ask, like, well, if God's so good, why is the world so bad? You have to separate sin from God in respect that he's not responsible for the sin. Um, and Eric said that, like he, he, he created things and they were all good, but we've corrupted ourselves by disobeying God. And it says in um, James, I was thinking of this verse, verse 13, James 1, 13 says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. I'm responsible for making bad choices, like for giving into temptation, for responsible for his sin. And that wasn't God's intent for him, just like it wasn't our intent. Now, that's free will, if you will, as the Bible explains it, but that free will is ultimate plan, if you will, for good, uh, for his creation, if Amen? You guys, does that make sense? Or did I convolute it more? Anyone else have anything or add to it? Well, I was thinking there's um, one aspect of the will of God and allowing evil to happen as part of his permissive will. Sometimes we talk about it as um, there's the, um, the perfect will of God, that which he uh, desires from his heart, like um, that all would be saved, all would come to repentance. That is obviously his desire. Is that going to happen? Uh, no, because he has given free will, so people get to choose. And he says, in fact, that um, when one of his disciples asks, will, will many be saved? And he says, you know, the, the way is broad and, and wide that leads to death, and many go in at that gate, you know, but the, the gate is narrow and the way is, um, I forget the wording of that. It's hard. And so few go in at the narrow, the narrow gate. Um, so yeah, I was thinking that then we, one of the, the, I think the, the issues that most of us have, you know, thinking about that question is we don't see how it can be good that we have to go through or that other people we know or love go through really hard things. Um, death, sickness, uh, extreme pain. And, and we don't see all ends. And so we say, how can this be good? And how can a loving God allow this horrible thing and the things that are happening right now in the world? Um, famines and war and, and um, disease and horrible things that people are going through. And we don't see how that can end in good. And so we say, well, then God must not be good. But the problem is I'm, I'm using my limited perspective and I'm then assigning um, a conclusion to, to the issue, but just based on the way I feel about it. And, and the fact is, the Bible says that God is working all things together for good. And I can't, I can't in my own ability um, know that. I have to trust him. It's like, it's, it's, like watching, it's like watching a movie for 10 minutes 
and making a judgment on the rest of the movie without Guilty. seeing how it plays out. It's like, oh, this movie sucks. It's going to be lame. And you turn it off when the next 90 minutes were like the greatest plot ever, like, and, it, and it's the happiest ending in the world. So I, I think that's like a way you can look at it. Oh, no, you guys go next. Oh, okay. Take a break. He's going to take a break. All right, I'm going to answer one here because I, I think this one probably won't be too long. And um, so my, the question I was going to answer was, why is it important to pray for the church leaders and their families? Selfishly, this one has to be answered. <laughs> um, so the first place I want to go is uh, a place where um, um, Paul actually tells, you, tells us to, to pray for our leaders. It says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, um, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then he says, the idea are leaders, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So some things to point out there. If you think of leaders in general, leaders are people in positions where they're overseeing people in some way or another. And the goal of that is to make those people's lives better. Now, in today's world, that's arguable, but that is the goal, all right? Like the goal of the school board is the, supposed to be the best interests of the kids that they're overseeing. The goal of the government is supposed to be the best interests of the people that they're overseeing. The goal of church leadership most certainly is supposed to be in the, for the best interests of God's people. And that's where it's like in this, that passage I read, it, it says pray for them so that they may lead, or the, the people like basically they're overseeing may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's kind of the heart of, of leading people well is that they can have peace in their lives. Leading them poorly would lead to unrest. And, and you kind of see that like in the world, right? When man tries to lead people in, in their best way of thinking and it leads to craziness and unrest. Well, the idea is that if we lead people as God tells us to lead them, then they're gonna have peaceful lives in, in godly and dignified every way, living according to God, God's word, basically. So that's the goal of like spiritual leadership. And there's some, some specific things, some specific responsibilities. I was just kind of going through scripture quickly. For those in leadership positions in the church, I'm talking about like elders, pastors, overseers, is to lead the church, to teach and preach the word, to protect the church from false teachers, to exhort the saints in sound doctrine, or basically encourage them to, to live God's word out, um, to shepherd, to oversee, to lead, to care for God's people uh, on basically his behalf, which is a huge responsibility, all right? And the purpose of prayer is to involve God in our lives when we need help, when we need direction, when we need wisdom. So we most certainly, as the leaders in God's church need those things. We need help because we're still people. We need direction. We need strength. We need wisdom that can only come from him in order to lead his people well. So that's why Paul's saying, pray for them. 
because they need God's help, all right? Now, so that's one part. We need help. That, that, that's why it's so important that you pray for your leaders because we're just normal people like you are. We've just been called to a specific role, but we need God's help just like you do. Um, the second thing is that we're in a spiritual battle. We have a very real enemy who we just talked. We talked about this when we, in January when we were leading up to the week of prayer and fasting, but I'm gonna go ahead and read Ephesians 6 again. It says Ephesians 6, uh, starting verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, and in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which, uh, uh, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So as, as, as Paul's going through these different pieces of armor God's given us to help us stand firm in, in, in the truth of who we are in Christ and the reality of... And he specifically says praying will help keep us alert. It'll help us persevere. It'll help us endure. Um, and he says pray for not just yourselves, but pray for all the saints. Pray for everyone. And then I love how Paul says in church, right? Pray I need your prayers, okay? So in this battle, and if you think of like battles, um, a, a common tactic, at least in the early days around here, was to take out the leaders. Because you take out the leaders, then you have no one giving orders, and it just leaves a bunch of confusion, and the people scatter, and they run, and there's a bunch of just chaos. And you actually even still see that today in, in some things like maybe the battle against terrorism, right? They always try to take out the leaders because they figure if they take out the leaders, then it's just gonna cause the rest of the organization to go into disorder and chaos. And so much the same way, looking at the Bible, it would seem that the enemy, we're all in the spiritual battle, but he especially tries to take out the leaders knowing that if he can take them out, it can put the rest of the church in disarray, in unrest. And there's one specific instance of this that came to mind in Luke 22. And this is the night before Jesus is crucified and having the uh, uh, last supper with his, his, his disciples. And shortly after that, he has this conversation with Simon or Peter talks about all, it's plural. So basically he's saying that Satan demanded that he has access to all of the disciples because he wants to sift you guys like wheat, like just shake you up. <laughs> and then he says, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, all right? So what we see there is that Satan wanted to go after the leaders in the early church. And Jesus's response 
they could not, so that their faith wouldn't fail or they'd be able to endure, they'd be able to stand firm, all right? So if Jesus's response to spiritual attacks was prayer, how much more should our response to spiritual attacks or to Satan attacking us be prayer? And what, just like the rest of us, he comes after the leadership. And so again, just like we need to combat the enemy's attacks with prayer, we need you to pray on our behalf. Amen. Have anything to add to that? I was going to, there's that story in Exodus, I think it's 17. I can't remember with Moses. And so there's, it, Moses goes, there's a battle and the, Joshua goes down to lead the troops. Moses and two guys go up on the hill and they pray. And it says, I don't know if you ever tried to hold thing, his hands up because whenever his hands the enemy would start to defeat him. So I think that's just a solid picture of leaders, the importance of prayer, our weakness, and the need to support each other in the battle. And I think it, that's the other thing I really like about what Chris said about that whole point of weakness is like, Jesus is the head of the church. You guys should always be checking what you're hearing from the pulpit or any source against God's word. You know, the Bereans search the scriptures to see whether these things are so like, I think part of the mission of their weakness, our need to pray, puts our attention back on him as the head of the church. Lest we make that mistake of exalting any man or looking to some man and thinking they're great instead of Christ. So um, our prayers are an explicit acknowledgement like, oh, Lord, Michael needs help. We can clearly see it. And that puts my attention back on Christ, you know, to ask on his behalf and also to keep me focused where it should be. So, yeah. You know, one of the things I, I wanted to just touch on really quick too is how I maybe to reading their Bible, like how to navigate it. And with the technology that we have today, it's really, really simple. And, and just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean like I have like every verse memorized. And I, I just, I have my thirties. And so anything I take in, something's got to go now. All right. So I, I'm not the best at memorizing like where everything is. I might have read it so many times that, okay, I know like these verses I referenced, I know these are the verses I'm looking for. And some of them I knew where they were at and I could go to it, but others I had to look it up. And like the cool thing is if you have like a Bible app on your phone and there's tons out there, but like blue letter Bible, you can have that on your phone and you have the whole Bible, different translations, whatever. And you can actually search, like even if you just, want to look up something like, okay, pray for your leadership or pray for leaders. You can type in those words and it'll pull up different scripture references that talk about those things. And you can kind of go through those and see what the Bible has to say about it and see if it answers your question. Um, you could Google it or DuckDuckGo, just like the same thing. Um, you know, Bible, what does the Bible say about praying for leadership? And see what it pulls up. Now, be careful about what you're reading because again, we let scripture dictate what we believe, not what people say. We always, what people say, we hold up to what scripture says. So you always wanna go to the scripture and, and, and make sure that this is actually what it's saying, but it's very, be able to do your own research to answer your questions. I'm just gonna add something really quick. Um, but the reason it's important to pray for leadership is because one of the reasons, like for no reason whatsoever, any kind of, ministry you're in at all. Um, I would say, I, I mean, I, I get so discouraged sometimes, like on the brink of depression, the brink of just pulling my hair out, like for no apparent reason. Oh, I just want to quit. I want to give up on life. I'm just like, you know, I can't even explain it. And, but it's a spiritual battle is what it is. Just what Chris was talking about. And 
one of the reasons it's important to pray for leadership is because, you know, you see somebody in the hallway or see somebody on the street or something. Hey, doing it good. Hey, doing good. See you later. You know, when, and then I go back in my pickup and cry, you know, or something like that. Like, like, you know, it's real. And it's not that, you know, there's a time and a place to open up and all that, but just the, just the battle is real. That's why it's important to pray. It's, it's super real. And also, just another little side note, I like how he added their families. Why is it important to pray for their families? A lot of times, one of the ways the enemy attacks leadership is by attacking the family, yeah. uh, attacking the kids, attacking spouses. It's even more painful and harder than just being attacked yourself. Yeah. So very important to remember to pray for families. How is Jesus being baptized by John, John the Baptist, fulfilling all righteousness? So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 3 and just read this section that actually uh, covers that uh, topic. And down to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized. But Jesus answered him, let it be so for open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, um, how is this fulfilling all righteousness? I think uh, I was joking with Chris earlier. The uh, short answer is uh, it's not <laughs> for him, why he came into the world. And so let's look at a few um, things quickly here. There's probably a few different ways. I think in this context, uh, we could say it's, it's, Jesus fulfilling God's will for him, for his earthly life. And um, it's also, um, or God's desire for him. And it's also uh, has the idea of right standing or um, having good or right standing before God, basically. Because God being the ultimate um, standard of righteousness and goodness um, so Jesus being, uh, but a concept with God. A couple things that are interesting, I thought about this passage. Um, one, uh, John the Baptist is of the priest, and, uh, and Jesus is through um, Joseph of David, the kingly tribe, right? And uh, so I was just thinking, you know, we've got John um, in the role of the, the cleansing and the atonement, and uh, Jesus coming in in the, the ruling and the deliverer role, right? And they're, they're meeting there. And I thought that's kind of a cool, um, uh, just sort of like backdrop. Baptized uh, fulfills all of God's will um, for him on earth or is part of that. Um, it's obedience to the father. He's doing what the father has told him to do. It says in John um, uh, 6, I'm trying to find my spot there. 638, uh, uh, he says, I've, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, right? And uh, in John 5, 9, um, the son can do nothing um, of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing, right? And so we see things like this. And there's also more about the baptism that he says there um, in verse 30 through 37 of chapter five in John. He mentions that baptism is sort of a um, father's um, 
us of, of him, right? Because immediately when he comes up out of the waters, we see the heavens open and God saying, this is my kid and I'm happy with him. He is fully, he is fulfilled um, to the people, nation of Israel, that this is the Messiah. This is the one that the father accepts. I think too, like um, one of the things we see in that, in that whole situation is um, John, you know, looks up and Jesus coming to die for the sins of the world. Um, a whole lot of symbology is connected with the Passover, right? And the, the Passover lamb was brought in to the home and they would, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They would look at it. They would make sure it's examine it, right? So they'd examine the lamb to make sure it was spotless, that it was one that would be acceptable. And so um, the nation is checking, hey, acceptable with God, for God to accept the sacrifice. It has to be acceptable with the people that they would say, yes, we want to bring this as the, the atonement lamb that, that would pay for our sins, right? And then the people would lay their hands, the priests actually in, in the Passover, lay their hands on the lamb, the head of the lamb, symbolically transferring their sins and saying, yes, we blood. And the, the death angel would pass over in the land of Egypt. So um, baptism being this picture and this bigger picture of Jesus coming to die for the sins of the world, all of the world. And there we see uh, the people um, in John, Jesus needing to be baptized in order to say, he is standing in on our behalf. Because uh, John's baptism, if you remember, it says was a baptism for repentance, right? It was a baptism of acknowledging, yep, we're sinners and we need to be cleansed. We need to be baptism is... Um, death, it's going down into the waters and it's um, putting off the old man and putting on the new man. You can look at uh, uh, First Corinthians, you want to look more at that. It mentions the first Adam, the last Adam, the first man and the second man, how that's this um, uh, more conversation on that topic. But um, suffice it to say, Jesus is being accepted by the people as the acceptable sacrifice. The father is saying, yes, indeed, we, I, I accept him as the sacrifice. And so he can be the mediator between God and man. And then um, when he dies for the sins of the world, he's accepted and his blood is acceptable before the father. And so, like it says in Hebrews, we can then have bold access to come before the throne of grace. And he's ever, ever lives to make intercession on our behalf before the Father. Does that sort of sum it up? And the word that he used was identification. And that he would be then, I think in those passages you read, identifying with us is that? Uh, the word uh, stand-in and proxy. Um, because when, when Jesus was presenting himself there, he, was, he didn't need to be baptized in order to be cleansed. He was already cleansed. But as the one who was in our place, he had to stand in our place, right? So him, him going down into the water, him, so that's part of need. And not just that, but also come back up out of the waters and to live again, right? And um, the things that we see in, um, in Romans, 
it says that we go down into baptism to identify with him, not so we can just stay down there, but so that we can be risen with him. It's pretty much the point of, of baptism. It's not just about atonement, but it's, it's, it's putting the death of the, the first Adam and clear as mud. Okay, so the question I got was, um, the question I got was uh, the security of the believer, uh, once saved, always saved, question mark. Does the church believe you can lose your salvation? So I'm happy to clear up a, de- a debate that's been had by the church for, you know, 2,000 years. No, of course, of course, not quite. Uh, so generally, there are two perspectives on this, which are included in the question regarding, quote, unquote, the security of the believer. So the question is like, hey, you become a Christian. Can you ever become not a Christian again? How would that happen? Or are you, are you, are you good, you know, from that time forward. So some people believe this idea sometimes maybe awkwardly worded, but once saved, always saved. If you're really saved, then you can't, that can never be undone. And some people believe that you can lose your salvation or they might say, leave your salvation. Now, let me take that first phrase first and just, because I think that really is easy to deal with. I, we don't believe that you can just lose your salvation like you lose your keys or, or something like that. And why would we say that that would matter? Well, if, if, um, if salvation is by grace through faith, and that's not of yourselves, Ephesians 2, right? Then if uh, my works... So if you are in hearing someone put forward a doctrine that's like, hey, you know, if you sin too much in this particular way and unconfessed, then you could be going to hell. And so, you know, you need to have these last rites performed or something to cleanse you from any sin that you fail to confess. And those things, in my mind, are do not withstand the scrutiny of Scripture. I think those are misunderstandings of the Bible, so I would discount those. So then we're left with sort of two perspectives, the idea of the eternal, and then a, another view that would say you could leave your salvation. And that view wouldn't be so much that you could sin too much to lose your salvation, like, oh man, sorry, your sin score's too high, you're out, but that you could by, I think, would you say that's true? Chapter six, um, I'll read it to you. writer of Hebrews, and it helps to remember that he's writing to a group of Judaism. So he's constantly telling them, hey, Jesus is better, go forward, don't go back. So chapter six says this, verse four, for it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, or your translation, if you're following, might say, have tasted of the heavenly gift, have tasted of the Holy Spirit, then turn away from God. It's impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God condemn that field and burn it. So a lot of people read this section, they go, well, it seems pretty clear that the author is warning them uh, that if they have tasted of the heavenly gift, they've tasted of the Holy Spirit, they've been enlightened, that it would be possible for them to end up in this state where they'd be cast away and burned. So that's one that, that they might appeal to. That's a pretty common 21. It says this, um, and when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then get, if they had never known the way to, and then reject the 15 verse six, which is the classic section on abiding in the vine. He says that if we don't abide in him, we can't bear any fruit. 
and eventually those, those are useless, they're gathered up and they're burned. And so that language about burning makes it sound like someone could stop abiding in Christ, wither, dry up, become fruitless, and then end up being burned, which makes us think, of course, of hell. So those would be three. There's probably others that you may have in your back pocket. On the security side, um, you have people who would look at John chapter 6, uh, verse 39. I'm going to read two from, or three verses, two verses from John, sorry. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 39 says, actually, I can probably just do these because I real quick notes to my so it says, he says, Jesus says, this is the will of God that I should lose, I should not lose even one of all those he has given me. Uh, John chapter 10 is the, the idea of the good shepherd, right? When he says that he's the good shepherd and he gets down to the end at 27, 29, uh, and he says that, um, I, actually, I should read all that because it's a longer section. I can't quote it. Uh, 27 says, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. That would include even the person themselves. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. Um, Romans eleven twenty nine says that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Salvation, of course, is a gift of God, right? Not of works, lest any man should boast. And 2 Timothy 2, um, chapter 2, verse 13, which, man, if you don't have this one marked in your Bible, you need to, because those days when you feel like a failure, this is one of my favorite verses to quote to myself. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful and listen to the assurance that he offers for he cannot deny himself that somehow when we become him, we're united with him and he'll, he won't deny us. So um, there are others, Romans chapter eight, where he says, uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God and, and so forth. So all that to say, there is a biblical case that both, these are not people who are denying the Bible in either case. These are folks generally who are appealing to the scriptures for their viewpoints. So what do we, what do, we do with that? And are we supposed to have an answer? I mean, I think in some ways the answer is yes. First John chapter five, verse 12 and 13 says this, um, he who has the son of God, Jesus, has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. Like it's a binary thing. You're either saved or you're not saved. And these things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. You're not supposed to be running around going like, man, I don't know. I'm kind of tentative about this. If you need to pray the prayer 57 more times, it'll finally take. You know, we're supposed to have some sense of rest in our relationship with the Lord. So that, that makes sense. And there's definitely other warning passages throughout the Bible. So some things that are helpful before I get a little bit further down into this is um, with the warning passages, this is a hermeneutical principle. So hermeneutics is the, the science and art of biblical interpretation, just how you read the Bible and interpret stuff. One of the things to ask when you run across a warning passage is what is at stake in the warning passage? What is he warning us from? So a great example of this would be 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 15, where he says that, um, let me read it, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, because of God's grace to me, I have, for no one can lay any foundation other than one we have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on the foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw, but on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward, but 
the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. So there's a warning here that a person could suffer loss in life. And he's talked about this foundation of Christ that even a person who's already begun in Christ, the foundation of their life is laid, it's Jesus, but now they've got to figure out how they're built and they could still lose something. But what is at stake in the passage? Is it their salvation? And I've picked an easy one for me and I would say this one clearly not. He's saying their work could be burned up. And I think that the last part of verse 15 makes that clear. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Basically, he's saying it's possible for you, having become a believer, to live a life where you just invest in worthless stuff. And by the time you get to heaven, you have nothing to show for it. You're like a guy whose house caught on fire. You wake up in the night and you get out and you're just happy to be alive. You're not bummed. You're alive, but you smell like smoke and you don't have any clothes or anything else to show for it. So how we are faithful with our time with the Lord does matter. There's a reward that he lists. So it seems like he's, the warning here is a life that's rewardable or a life that suffers loss. In that case, it's not uh, salvation. So I think sometimes warning passages get lumped into this question of salvation when that may not really be what's at stake. The thing is soteriology, this just study or doctrine of salvation. And among the various theories for that, you've got two big camps that often try to claim everybody, and that's not fair, but Arminianism and Calvinism. And so Calvinism would be a system that generally, among its other features, would claim an eternal security view, the emphasis of God and his uh, sovereignty. And so even salvation is really a function of God choosing you and giving you, um, you're actually regenerated before you believe in the Calvinistic system, where the Arminian system emphasizes the, the freedom, the free will of man. For the record, we wouldn't espouse either of those systems in our church. Uh, our goal is just to do what God's word says and be loyal to that and not loyal to any uh, human system per se. So there are both Arminians and Calvinists and other flavors in, in our body, and you're all welcome as long as you adhere to God's word. The reasons for that would be that I think the preponderance, that is the majority of the clear verses, argue for the security of the believer. I think uh, Jesus' statement to Nicodemus that you must be born again is an interesting analogy that he chooses because uh, birth is an irrevocable process, right? So to pick on Sam Suits, since he's over here, and he's a teenager, you know, he may decide that his parents are awful, that he hates Chris and Sarah, and that they're stupid. He can, you know, legally emancipate himself from them. He could change his name to, you know, Papa Fruit Bar or whatever, lose the suit's name. He could do all of those external things, and none of those things would change the fact that he's a biological product of Chris and Sarah's suits, unless he's adopted and you haven't told him. Okay, so he's definitely not, not tonight. So you see, this. so it's interesting, Jesus chooses this language about being born again, that when you're born again by the Spirit of God, you, you now have him. You, and so that process, from what I can see from that analogy, wouldn't be an undoable process. You can't be unborn again. Um, so that's my own personal persuasion, but I don't fight anyone who sees it differently, kicking around ideas, which is fine. I'm not trying to poo-poo that. But usually, where do you guys hear this situation come up? When do people ask about yeah, so it usually comes up because you're, listen, this is really important. You're looking at someone else's life. So you're not looking at your own life. You're looking at someone else's life uh, that is either alive and made a profession of faith or walked with the Lord in a time that you knew them or someone that you love that has died and made a profession of faith and walked with the Lord and then ceased to do so. And really you're kind of pastor and I ask them why they're asking me. It'll usually be like, well, 
This one pastor that I had when I was in my 20s taught me the Bible, and then he ran off with the church secretary and stole all the money, and he's a heroin dealer or something like that. Or my, or more, more poignantly, my son died, and when he died, he was you know, laying in the gutter with a needle hanging out of his arm and, and had not walked with Jesus for years, and what am I supposed to do with that? And so um, this gets to a... <laughs> now I'm really off the rails for Michael, but... Um, well, let me stop and say... Is, yeah, go ahead. Michael, uh, I was talking to Michael about this a while back, and he told me this. Don't steal my thunder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let me do it. Go ahead. <laughs> Doctrine of pastoral effect. Yeah. No, that, it's okay. Go okay, ahead. okay, okay. Let me do this. So, what, this Story, is sort of a legitimate that day. The people who say, "Hey, didn't we give their list of things?" and they'll say, "I never knew you." Um, First John says that by this, the children of God are evident by looking at the fruit of their life. Um, so there is something to that. We know that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That there is evidence in a person's life when they believe, eventually, in some way, that there is fruit in their life. The question is, how much fruit and when? And we're not given those things right? Being there, having as a sinner, and somewhere after mocking Jesus in the same conversation, changes his mind and says, you know what? Remember me when you came into your kingdom, come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, saved. Or you look at, um, Stephen just got done through teaching through uh, Peter, one of Peter's letters, and Peter tells us about Lot. He says, righteous Lot. Dude, if you read the story of Lot, gang rape situation, he turns back, he gets drunk. I mean, he's a hot mess. And the Lord says that Lot is righteous. So it's really difficult for us to, to know enough to look at someone else's life and, and know for sure where they're at. But I do think that we can, because the Lord tells us to, do some work of helping people um, where they're at. So for example, here's how this works for me as a pastor. If a guy comes to me himself and says, I don't know if I'm a Christian, I'm gonna ask him some questions because I'm not his judge. What I say does not get him into heaven, but I'm gonna take him through some of the things in the Bible. He's like, do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Have you prayed at some point in your life? I'm gonna ask him about the fruit of his life. And if there's those things that are there, I'd say, man, based on what you're telling me, what I can see in the scripture, I think you have good ground to do that. But you need to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. That's the language of the scripture. And conversely, there may be someone who's talking to me and thinks they're saved. And I'd say, man, let's read these verses. So this happened to me for real one time, working at Coastline, a relative of someone from church came to me and I'm getting to know him, we're having coffee, and I've asked him if you're a Christian, all that. He says, yes, but I'm just watching his life and I'm like, man, something isn't adding up. So one day we turn to Galatians 5, that section that has the fruit of the Spirit. And just before the fruit of the Spirit, it says this. Now, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I've said before, anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Read that. That list sounds like my life. And I'm like, oh, Okay, well, <laughs> that may mean that though you've prayed a prayer and gone to church, you aren't actually born again because the Bible says this is the, these are the deeds of the flesh. You may not actually know the Lord. And so that was using the Bible to help someone find out where they're at. Uh, but I, my job is not to tell someone they're a Christian. I can tell them what God's word says and help them that way, but I can't tell them. It's not my job to finally judge. The person that I saw, listened to, followed as a teacher, my my 
family member that I love is for me what I call the doctrinal or pastoral effect, made up term. But what I wanna know is from your theology, how does that affect the way that you treat people? How does that affect the way you treat people? You believe in eternal security? Okay, how do you approach people? You believe you can lose your salvation? Okay, how do you approach a person? And most of the really functionally people, it's sort of their, their way of armchair quarterbacking how salvation works. So hypothem are eternally secure, okay? And so Brenton tomorrow falls off the wagon. He uh, hits the bottle super hard. He's getting with lots of women. We find him in front of Annie's laying in a gutter with just like piles of drugs around him and I don't know whatever else, okay? So we walk up to, we walk up to Brent. Now, and this has been a pattern. Brent's been doing this now for months. And so we're concerned. Brent's served the Lord with us. And here's this guy's life. And we were like, man, is this guy, you know, where's he at? So we walk up to Brent and he rears himself up out of the gutter. And he's like, guys, man, my life is, just, is a mess. What should I do? And Eric, who looks at Brent's life and goes, clearly Brent was a Christian. And now he's renounced Christ and gone back to sin. Let's say he's posted on Facebook, I hate Jesus. Brent. Brent is being reborn again to salvation. Now, Michael, the eternal security guy, looks at Brent and goes, well, he may not ever have been saved. You know, 1 John 2 says they went out from us because they're not really of us. Or I might think, well, he's backslidden. But the message I'm gonna give to Brent is gonna be, Brent, you need to repent of your sins, ask Jesus to forgive you, and walk with Christ. Now, in Eric's mind, he would be saying, Brent's being saved and born again. And in my mind, he's being restored to salvation or saved for the first time. But our counsel, our discipleship process is the same. We just have a different understanding of what's happening in that moment. But really that is up to God. But what does the Bible say? But I find for most people, and there's a lot of controversies in the church that I think can be resolved by this principle, actually on the same page in that way. And when we get to heaven, the Lord will make clear to us what's different. So to um, it, first off, I said a lot of things. If you have questions and you're here, raise your hand. I'd love to try to answer those. And while you're thinking if you want to raise your hand, um, I want to do two things. One is what Chris did and say, how do I arrive at these very... Accordance is just a book where you can search out words and now it's gotten easier, like Chris said, because there's so many apps and, and resources online. Resource, you can get commentaries on scripture there. You can give you actual translations. I really find that helpful when there's a challenging verse. I'll look at in several different translations of the Bible. And sometimes it's just a wording issue that's apps. Logos is a one that a lot of guys here at the church like. It's a paid app. Um, there are some free, free ones. Blue Letter Bible has a free one. I use one called Mantis. The great thing about those, by the way, if you can find them, is some of them have offline Bibles, which means like, let's just hypothetically say you go to a church with terrible cell service and no Wi-Fi. Like if those existed, like an only uh, multiple commentaries too. So if you want help on those, I'd be happy to pass those along, but those are things that I use. So here's Chuck Smith. This is the closest thing. If you're thinking about Calvary Chapel, every church is independent, but um, here's Chuck Smith, the founder of all the Calvaries, and am eternally secure, as long as I abide in Jesus Christ. No power can wrest me from his hand. I have no doubts or qualms at all about my eternal security and my salvation. I don't worry about it. Oh, is God going to save me or not? Or will I make it in the last day? I know I will because I have no intention of doing anything but abiding in Jesus Christ. As long as I abide in him, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> you see, that doesn't even enter my mind. I'm like Peter, Lord, where can we go? You have words of eternal life. People get all hung up on eternal security and all, and that's too bad because I am eternally secure as long as I abide in him and I have no intention of doing anything else. 
So that was Chuck's way of resolving that tension is saying, hey, the key, really what we want to do is not figure out what might happen to us if we don't walk with Jesus, but the goal of our... The last thing I'm done. Because I do get that question. I was just with a family recently. It lost a son. And so they're looking back at his life and wondering, where is he? And that's, that's an okay thing to ask, but I really think it's important to know that you and I, listen, you and I do not have the responsibility to answer that question. That is the job of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to whom each of us is accountable. So I can say, let's take a look at what the Bible says and they can do that work of comparing life if they want to, but you need to re- just, this will set you free if you realize I don't have to do that. It's not my job. It's not. What does the process of becoming a Christian look like? But the final judgment belongs to God and let's leave it with him. Well done, Michael. Thank you. You can hold that mic, Eric. You have the last question. Well, since I have the mic, <laughs> Michael told me this one time. Uh, he goes, look, you know, and, and it's true. I think the most times I've talked about people, this is, is when looking at someone else's life and go, oh, did they lose their salvation or, you know, did, were they never saved or whatever? He goes, he goes, look, it's not up to us to decide if someone's saved. Like, I don't even know if Michael's saved. Really, I don't know if Brendan's saved. I mean, I'm, you know, we're all pretty sure they're saved, right? But, but really, at the end of the day, like, we don't know. We don't know the heart just sets us free from having to figure all that out because it's not for us to figure out. And, uh, but, the, but the point of the, the real the question of that should lead us not to, well, was that person saved? Are you saved? Yeah, right. Are you abiding in Christ? Amen. Am I abiding? Oh, well, it's not for me to know if Brent's saved or not, but I can darn well make sure I'm abiding in Christ and I am following Christ. So. Well, there's an, a one other situation that I think is very common and that's sure about your own salvation, right? And, and some people at various points struggle with despair or struggle with um, just not sure that God is really going to forgive them or that his grace is enough. Maybe their sins are just so bad. They're, they're struggling under the weight of their, of their conscience, right? And um, that is not a bad process True. to go through, examine right? Yourself. That It causes you to, to examine yourself just like you're saying um, but I think the um, solution, the thing we point to then is um, to what the, what the word says. And it says that those who come to the Lord, he will in no wise cast out. And, um, and that there is security in, in coming to him. And that verse that I mentioned um, in several places, whosoever, whosoever will come, you know, there is a, an open door. Yeah, the way is narrow, but it's you know where, it is, where it's at. Yeah, and it's, it's Jesus, right? He is the door. And those who enter into him enter into life. And it's not, uh, it's not a hard thing. It's not crawl over broken glass. It's confess your sins, <laughs> repent, turn to him, call upon him. And it says, whoever calls upon him will be saved. Yeah, it's good. Okay, so uh, the last question here is just a real simple, easy one. Um, the question, two and a half, three hours, and I'm <laughs> clear this up for everybody. <laughs> so this is definitely not exhaustive. What is heaven going to be like? First off, I would just like to share a little bit of, I don't know if warning is the right word, but there's a lot of resources out there um, that claim to have some sort of revelation of what heaven 
is like um, you know, people that have said, oh, I had a near-death experience and I saw a tunnel and a light and my grandma and, you know, whatever. And not to necessarily, you know, discount any of those things, but honestly, you know, it's nothing, the standard by which we um, live and know about the things of God and the things of, they, you know, their uncle or whatever said they saw a thing. No, it's, it's the Bible. So um, I would just say we have to look at the Scripture to know what's heaven, what heaven's going to be like. Um, and I have a, I just, some things just kind of came to mind, and at any time you guys want to chime in, that would uh, be, that would be fine. Um, but the first, what are we going to be like? Like, what is our bodies going to be like? How is it going to, how are we going to feel? Um, the place of heaven and the purpose of heaven. So um, in uh, Luke chapter 16 is the story uh, I don't think it's a parable. It's a story of a rich man and uh, someone named Lazarus. And what, what happened in this, in this story is real people, real thing uh, that Jesus, it's the event that Jesus knew about, told the story of, known as Hades, which I'm not going to get into all the intricacies of Hades and Sheol and Abraham's bosom and all men lived on in eternity after this life on earth. They kept living in a place not on this earth, right? And in this place, we know from, uh, in Luke 16, we know from verse 23, um, sorry, what, on what the afterlife might be like. Uh, in verse 23, it says um, that the rich man uh, looked over to, uh, across this great chasm to this place of comfort, and he saw Lazarus and Abraham as other people. Um, we're going to have, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We're going to have our, but he recognized Lazarus and he recognized Abraham. Um, so we're still going to have this cognitive sense of who we are, who other people are. Um, let me see. I'm just going to turn to here. I didn't, we're still going to have, uh, desires, senses, and feelings says in verse 24, the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. So he wants, he's desiring something. To dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish. So he's feeling some kind of anguish at this point. Um, so in eternity, we're going to feel things. We're going to hear things, have cognitive senses of some sort. And he wants relief. And at this point, for the rich man, it's impossible. Uh, he... And then uh, Abraham replies, now he is comforted and you are in anguish. So whereas the rich man was in anguish, uh, Lazarus was comforted in this place called Abraham's bosom, which I believe for the all, all intents. All intent, um, and, then, and then he says something else we know about this place. He says, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm is fixed. In other words, um, sorry, bud, but we can't go over there to comfort you, and you ain't coming over here either. God has fixed a great chasm, and there is no going in between. So something else we know about eternity is that once you end up in the place that you are after you've died, there's no changing. <clears throat> also, a little bit further down here in verse 27 and 28, um, our memory and our conscience will still remain in eternity. 
the rich man says, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. For I have five. So the rent, and he's thinking, he's feeling, he's looking, and he's going, oh, man, what about my brothers? I don't want them to come to this place. Hey, hey, send Lazarus up to <clears throat> tell my brothers, don't come here. Yeah. And, um, and again, Abraham replies, and he says, they have Moses and the prophets. <laughs> Let them hear them. They had his five brothers, or yeah, was it five? Yeah. They had everything they needed to go to the place of comfort. Moses and the prophets, the word of God. Read the word, do the word. Guess what? You won't end up in the place of anguish. And so um, I think this, uh, and also I just have Revelation 21.4 here. It says, he will wipe every pain anymore for the former things. We're going to remember things. We're going to maybe long for things. I don't know. In some way, shape, or form, we're still going to have our cognitive heaven going to be like. No more tears. <laughs> Probably no politics, in, at least the way we know of it. Um, no pain, for the former things have passed away. So heaven's going to be awesome for those who are going. What were take weeks to, to figure this out, but I think this is just a really good chunk of scripture to look at and go, wow, you know, heaven, what, what is heaven? Where is heaven? Heaven is just in plain and simple description is the dwelling place of God. It's where God lives. It's where God resides. Um, Revelation 4 and 5 describe this as a physical place. It's bright. I should probably just turn there. So he says, uh, come up here and I'll show you what may take place after this. At once I was in the spirit. And a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So we have a throne and one seated on the throne, God. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow. So there's these lights. There's precious stones, um, peals of thunder, uh, torches of fire, seven spirits of God, a sea of glass like crystal, um, I'm not exactly sure what in Revelation uh, 21, 22, it says there's no need for the sun or the moon for the glory of God and the lamb give their light to all. So evidently God himself is the light somehow. Um, also, I like how Revelation 21 and 22 describes heaven as a physical place because it says it has high walls. Uh, this is describing uh, the new Jerusalem, um, coming down out of heaven, the, the new heavens and the new earth, new heavens and the new earth, has high walls, gates, radiance. Apparently, evidently, it's radiant. It's a radiant place. It looks like jewel crystal. <laughs> uh, I used to work for a paving company, and my dad and I used to joke all the time because paving is always by when you when you pave a street, it's by the ton. Oh, well, you know, we got this job, and it's and it's uh, you know we're paving it for X amount of ton. And my dad always made this joke. He goes, well, when we get to heaven, he goes, you think it was expensive per ton down here to pave? He says, wait, it's in heaven or pave with of the new Jerusalem. Um, and it's, it's a cube. I think it's, what is, what is it, 12,000 stadia in the scriptures. It translates to about 1,200 miles. I went through a study of this in, Revelation, uh, in men's Bible study through the book of Revelation. And I figured it all. Somehow there's all these. And then you can estimate the estimated number of people throughout all history and then, of course, it's, it's an estimate. How many people got saved? Um, you know, the way is narrow. The, the, 
the gate is narrow, the, the way is hard to, to salvation. If you kind of estimate the uh, number of people who may have made it to heaven, it comes out to like every person gets like nine acres or something in this cube that's the new Jerusalem. I can't remember what it is. Interesting kind of, you know, it's all conjecture and, and whatever, but just something that's like, uh, I don't believe it's spiritual or symbolic because you can't measure a, something that's symbolic, but he actually lists that can be measured. Uh, I like that. I, I measure things a lot. So um, also says the walls are over 200 feet thick. Another measurement. I have two, I have two questions. <laughs> Is this on? I have two questions. First off, does it say my pets are going to be in heaven? And the second one is, does it say anything about food? There will be food in heaven. Pets? Well, there's going to be horses in heaven because we know that um, when, we, when Jesus comes back to all the kingdoms and kings of the earth are going to gather to fight against God. Jesus is going to come back, strike them all down with a sword out of his mouth, but we're going to be riding behind him, riding on horses. So there's going to at least be horses, the verses, but the scriptures say that when an animal dies, it goes to the dirt. And when we die, you know, our souls pass on in eternity. We, so is there going to, is your dog going to be in heaven? I don't know. Animals, maybe, maybe the dogs will be there. I don't know. If God was with an earth that is passing away, uh, and all the variety of creatures he made and the wondrous, like, amazing beauty and creative colors and all the stuff they do from the depths of the ocean to the way up high into the sky. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty easy. There's a couple of verses um, pop out to my mind that are maybe uh, not typically uh, gone to for this time. Starting in verse uh, 13, he's speaking about some different people in the Old Testament. And he says, all these died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. That's um, in context, uh, Abraham and Sarah leaving uh, Ur of the Chaldees. But they were looking for the, the land that God had promised them. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then again, in uh, verse 35, he's saying uh, these people who are tortured and refused a homeland, it's a better country, it's a heavenly country in the next chapter. And this is, says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living in festal gathering. Festal is like feast or a party, celebration to an assembly of the firstborn who are righteous, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. I think that we got a lot of things there that are, are um, the focuses are what heaven is going to be described by there, right? It's, it's gathering. 
there's the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, right? And that's speaking of those who are, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the other place where it talks about the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren, right? And we're adopted into the family of God. And Jesus is there. Um, God is there, the judge of all, the spirits of righteous people who are made perfect. And um, the blood of the covenant is there, right? The blood that says we have the right to be there is always there, right? And that seems to be a, um, a feature of heaven. It's like, that's always um, there to show that we have the right to um, respond. Corinthians 15, uh, you, did you have that one? I didn't want to steal that from you if you already had it. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, and let's see, let's start in verse uh, 40. Glory of the heavens of the earthly is another kind. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star we're looking at. What are our bodies going to be like? What, what is the resurrected body like, the spiritual body? So we're going to see a few things here. Uh, verse 42, or yeah. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. So it's imperishable, okay? It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's gonna be powerful. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual man, Adam, or the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's Jesus. And so, yeah, there's a few things we see about what our heavenly bodies are going to be like. They're going to be glorious. They're going to be incorruptible, imperishable, um, glorious. So those are some cool things about uh, features that, that we're looking forward to in the resurrection of our bodies. Amen. And when Jesus uh, rose from the grave, he was in his glorified body. He uh, fried fish on the beach. Um, he ate food. He's like, hey, guys, don't be afraid. By the way, do you have something to eat? I'm hungry. Yeah. The dining, we're going to sup. We're going to dine with him. So, yes, there will be um, food, I believe. Uh, the verse I was thinking was, of was Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So this is, there's a lot of, um, this is something that some, some people would look at and say, see, the spirit of man goes upwards. In other words, uh, the spirit, uh, we're a triune being, whereas, you know, the beast goes down to the earth. I want to talk about a little bit more about the purpose in heaven. And uh, our purpose in heaven is going to be to worship God. Our purpose in heaven is going to be to dwell with God. Um, and we see this again in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, where myriads and myriads of angels were worshiping. Everyone in that throne room would bow down and worship him, say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know, a lot of people think of heaven, they go, well, uh, it's just, I'm just, what is this? I'm going to be like one of those, you know, chubby little angels playing a harp, floating around on a cloud, you know, and I don't know if I'm real honest. Just, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to do that for eternity, you know? Well, if, you're, if you want to go to heaven, you will be, so you should probably get used to it while you're here. But um, also, I believe that we're going to have jobs in heaven, that we will rule and reign with Christ. And 
We know this is true for the thousand-year reign where the kingdom of God will be made manifest and those who have placed their faith in Christ will literally rule and reign with him. In what capacity? I don't know. The Bible says that we will rule and reign with him. Um, I think of the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus tells this parable of a uh, master. He goes away and he gives each and each servant. um, He took his resources productive with what? his master had given him. And when the master returned, he said, you were faithful with the 10 talents I gave you, so you will rule over 10 cities. You were faithful with the five I gave you, you will rule over five cities. Um, Again, it's a parable, but I believe it's a picture of um, the responsibilities we'll have in eternity um, based on what we did with the resources he gave us on this side, in this life. Um, Also, Um, In Revelation 22, one last thing, it says a river of life flowed, I believe it's through the city, the tree of life, Garden of Eden. A lot of people look at these verses and they say, well, the, the, the perfection of creation and Eden will once again be restored in heaven. I personally believe that to be true. I don't see why it wouldn't be true. Um, but one thing that I look at and just for the fall, God gave Adam a job to keep the garden. He gave him something to do. He didn't just say, hang out and nap all day. No, he said, keep the garden. So God had something for Adam to do, even in that perfect uh, place of relationship with himself. So I believe that heaven will be something like that. I have one last. Um, Somebody did a follow-up question online. And I want to answer this because I, I think it provides a good opportunity of like uh, a hermeneutic principle or something in interpreting the Bible is always best to let the Bible define itself. And, and God tempting does not tempt the evil. They said when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray and he prayed, lead us not into temptation, how does that fit with God does not tempt? Good question. So let's go back to James 1.13 and see. So James 1.13 says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. No one. So the context of that passage is temptation involving evil. It's saying that God does not tempt us with evil. So now we go to Luke, and we go to verse 4, where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. He's and lead us not temptation. Now, there's no mention of evil there. When you look at the word that's used there in the Greek for temptation, it can mean one of two things. And they're somewhat similar, but they're somewhat different. And that's, it can mean temptation or test. And so maybe you've heard it said before, what the enemy would mean for temptation for you, the, the Lord might mean as a test. And that word test, what comes along with that is that And we know that the Bible says in multiple places that hard things are going to happen in your life. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 actually tells us no temptation or test has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted or tested beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So you will in fact be tempted or tested, test. So basically if I'm explaining it clearly, God does not lead us into temptation. So when it's it's saying here, or temptation to do evil. So when he's saying, it's not that 
you're asking God, don't leave me into doing sinful things. It's God, like protect me from testing. I mean, and, and there's a, the, the idea there is being humble in our lives and understanding that we're weak and we're foolish and we make mistakes. Like if you go into like a hard situation and you're like, I'm the man, I got this attitude of Lord, I need your help. I don't know if I can handle this. I need you to strike me, man, help avoid these situations in my life. Like protect me, do not lead me into hard things. So that's the heart that, that, the, that Jesus is trying to convey that we should have. It's, it's, it's not that we need to worry about God trying to tempt us with evil. Hopefully that makes sense. You guys have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would just say that uh, we need to remember, I have to remind myself of this, or the Lord has reminded me of this, is it's not a sin to be tempted. Mm. It's not a sin to be tempted. And oftentimes I can get that confused, like, oh, I was tempted, or, or I think of temptation, and then I just automatically default to just giving into it. But we need to remember that by the Spirit, yet he sinned. Was he tempted? You bet he was, but he didn't sin. So being tempted is not the same thing as sinning. It's what we do with the temptation mm. when we're tempted. And, and I think that's a good situation. Too. That was a test that God was allowing, but it was actually Satan that was doing the, t- the tempting of the sin. Is everything, mm. right? And so we go back to verse two of James and it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfast and um let steadfast good stuff all right we're over time um so thank you guys for tuning in tonight and thank you guys for the time you spent in looking up those answers and of course any of us are available um to like further answer any questions you guys might have just fully part multiple ways to turn them in, you can turn them in on any, uh, through direct messing, messaging us on Facebook or Instagram. You can do it uh, uh, through our bulletins that we hand out every Sunday. There's a little space to fill out questions. You could drop them in the info desk, totally anonymous. If you don't want your name on it, that's fine. Um, or you could just find us in the hall or whatnot, and we'll put it on the list of questions and answers. So-